Hello, and welcome back to the New Books Network. Um, This is Dana Dennis. I'm one of the hosts of the Anthropology Channel. And today I'm delighted to talk with Dr. Jessica Johnson about her recent book, Biblical Porn, Affect, Labor, and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire. It was published earlier this year, 2018, by Duke University Press. Dr. Johnson's is a lecturer in the Department of Anthropology in the Department of Gender, Women, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Washington. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So our usual first question here on the New Books Network is, um, we ask for a little bit of intellectual biography. Um, Can you tell us how you came to write this book? So I started my dissertation research on same-sex marriage politics, as it was called at that point in time in Seattle. Um, and I was taking a lot of women, gender, sexuality studies classes in addition to anthropology classes. And it was just in 2003 when I started graduate school, um, a very hot issue at that point in time. And so I was interested in looking at both sides of the issue, um, very much like Faye Ginsburg's, um, contested lives as a matter of fact, looking at both sides of the abortion issue. So, um, so I was intrigued by that kind of an approach And so I wasn't looking to advocate for one side or the other, but rather um, seeing if there were any sort of cross, you know, um, connections in terms of the language being used, why marriage, why now, um, those kinds of questions. So when I went to Mars Hill for the first time, I wasn't interested in writing a book about about Mars Hill or Mark Driscoll at all. It was rather going to be about, okay, how is this church talking about marriage, talking about Um, gender relations within marriage, um, you know, and what is their stance on the same-sex marriage issue. One of the things that intrigued me about Mars Hill in particular was that at that point in time, um, and when I started my field work, that was in 2006, um, they had, at that point, a centralized location within a very, you know, close to downtown location within Seattle, which is unusual for a megachurch. Um, at that point, they were growing rapidly by leaps and bounds such that they were starting to go multi-site. Um, they were one of an earlier churches that started to, to do that, where they started multiplying throughout the city. Um, so when I was going, I was very interested in just, you know, what what is this kind of church? How are they attracting so many people, especially young folks? Um, I noticed that the demographic was you know, a lot of people in their 20s, um, you know, 30s, um, a lot of single folks, um, a lot of men in the church services, which um, was unusual. Um, A lot of, you know, in terms of evangelical Christianity and other sorts of denominational practices. um, It's, it's, it's strange, in a sense, to see somebody preaching to men specifically, as much as Mark Driscoll was. So, um, so there are a lot of trappings to the church that I found intriguing. It was getting a lot of buzz at the time within Seattle. Um, they had a uh, musical venue called the Paradox um, that had been around for a while at that point and had been one of the all-ages venues within Seattle, one of the only for a point in time. Um, and so it was. It had a lot of musical, um, you know, a lot of musicians that were going there, um, you know, from very, from very cross, um, sort of sections within music genres. So it wasn't just Christian rock or something along those lines. There was a lot of, um, hardcore music, uh, you know, bands that wouldn't identify as Christian per se. Um, so there was a lot of cultural sort of, um, um, you know, uh, resonances with what, what was going on in Seattle, generally speaking, in terms of the music scene, um, that it was actually very actively a part of and helpful in producing, um, in addition to the fact that they were using Hollywood movies. And, and when it comes to same-sex marriage politics, not speaking out against same-sex marriage from the pulpit as actively as some other churches may be doing at that point in time. In fact, um, Mark Driscoll was saying things along the lines of, you know, I'm not going to join any protests against this issue. Um, you know, some people might within the church, but this isn't something that I'm going to actively speak out against. Um, so I noticed that within the church, like this very, um, Mark Driscoll would talk about it in terms of a culturally liberal, but theologically conservative or fundamentalist 
um, purview. And that was fascinating to me. And it seemed to be resonating with a lot of young folks, um, you know, across the genders um, within Seattle. Um, so that just as a, yeah, it was just an anomaly, really. Um, and so I was very intrigued by that. Um, I was raised a Catholic. Um, I had some experiences with going to church as a Catholic when I was being raised. Um, I don't identify as a Christian and I haven't for my whole life, really. That was just something that I was doing in terms of like that was what my family was. And so I would go. Um, so I had an affinity with what church was supposed to look like from that sort of point of view. <laughs> but um, Mars Hill really blew me out of the water because it was just radically different from that. Um, there were members artwork within on the walls. Um, there was a kind of coffee shop vibe when you first walked in, you know, there was free coffee, a lot of buzz, a lot of people just in groups talking very animately and actively, um, a lot of students and their college sweatshirts. Um, and then you go into the sanctuary and it was very dark um, moody, but in all of the right ways where it sort of conjured the sense of a club like atmosphere. Um, there were DJ sort of setups in the middle of the, you know, amphitheater. And then, um, the, the stage was just littered with so many musical instruments and mics. And it was just, um, it's a very interesting space right from the get-go to me. So I didn't walk into the church thinking, okay, this is the place that I'm going to write my book about. Um, it was more the matter that it compelled me to write a book about it. Um, I felt, I felt almost after a certain extent and very quickly, um, as though this was something that I really needed to investigate further. Um, so even though it wasn't my dissertation project and I wrote a full dissertation that wasn't about Marcel, that was about same-sex marriage politics within Seattle at that point in time, um, it was, it was a place that I always knew um, yeah, that I needed to, I needed to look into further. I needed to examine further because it just had so many interesting angles to it. And, um, it was again, just so unique being in Seattle. Yeah, thank you. And that really comes across in the book. I think that this place was um, compelling and interesting for a number of reasons. Um, you've already covered this a little bit, but I wondered if, um, for those of our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the wider context of American evangelicalism, um, can you give a little bit more background information about um, who is Mark Driscoll, what's Mars Hill Church, um, and kind of what's the story of the church's rise and fall as you chronicle it in your book? Yeah, so um, it started in 1996 um, and, you know, started in the Driscoll's home. They lived in Seattle at that point in time and, um, you know, according to the narrative, were having Bible study um, within their home with a very small group of people. And then it you know, they started finding spaces um, outside of their home and it was very nomadic um, for, you know, several years um, until they basically found this space in Ballard um, and in the early 2000s. Um, and so, you know, it's not that unusual in the sense that a lot of churches will start out in very small spaces as Bible studies. I mean, this is a very common kind of creation narrative within a lot of evangelical churches, at least in a contemporary sense. Um, but Again, what was unusual or I think interesting about what Mars Hill was doing and Mark Driscoll was doing in particular was very adamantly speaking to men. Um, he was very actively saying, these are the, you know, the, this is, we need to get men into the church. Um, we need to get more masculine leaders and, and using that language of masculine leaders within the church. Um, and then in addition to that, talking a lot about uh, the need for attracting, you know, artistic types, people who are invested in IT technologies. So even though some of that, um, what's called commonly muscular Christianity, um, you know, from an evangelical pers perspective or context, um, you know, you could, you could go back to Billy Sunday, as I do in my book, um, which is, you know, early 20th century, late 19th century, um, you know, American fundamentalist, you know, um, men need to be real men and step up. Um, but the, the difference 
there's there's a few differences there. Um, one being that Billy Sunday was actively involved in social justice projects, and um, at that point in time, was talking about how men in particular shouldn't be drinking all the time, should be more responsible in the home, be more responsible in terms of family. Um, but then also taking a social justice angle when it came to, um, you know, uh, you know, about poverty, mm-hmm. about, you know, helping out families, you know, in different kinds of um, class milieus. Um, whereas at Mars Hill, it was so much more about, um, and, 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 you know, I use this in the book a little bit, a more neoliberal kind of perspective about um, a personal responsibility, a familial responsibility whereby, you know, that individualized kind of, um, you know, sense of we take care of ourselves um, was definitely active. And so it wasn't so much spread out or disseminated into the broader city, although there were certain, I mean, eventually some satellite churches that took up a little bit more of a social justice angle, especially in the downtown um, location. But, But for the most part, Driscoll's particular onus was much more about, and again, this kind of, you know, neoliberal perspective of growth, Mm -hmm. right? So if you just kept growing, if you just kept buying up more real estate and or or buying up churches that had been zoned to be churches so that you didn't have to go through all those angles when it came to the city ordinances, um, you know, and being able to spread the word out throughout the city um, and meeting people in their own neighborhoods and having community groups in the neighborhoods so that you were actually going out into the public. So it was it was it was a very anti mega church suburban or ex urban model. Um, where you're attracting people to you, it was much more like go out into, um, you know, the city and meet people where they're at. Um, so, so it, it was really at the cusp of a lot of different, interestingly, a lot of different sort of trends that have now become more commonplace. But at that point in time, again, in the late nineties, early two thousands was kind of new and different where, you know, churches then started to replicate more. Um, they started to not use that suburban megachurch model so that they were actually, again, trying to invest more in being in an urban mm-hmm. space, right? And then attracting people by being then like like replicating throughout those urban spaces, um, whether that, again, be community groups in a smaller scale or actual facilities where, you know, pastors would then be, you know, on hand at that at that particular location. But interestingly, um, you know, the, the head pastor in this case, Driscoll would be the mm-hmm. one who would be on video screen and would be the one preaching the word. Right. So a lot of you hear already, right. The trappings of then the kind of authority that that would yield. Um, so, so he was, and uh, Driscoll was the primary voice, right. I mean, a lot of, um, the actual preaching itself was being done by him, even in these satellite churches um, that started to, to crop up. And even though the party line was, oh, well, they're their own church, you know, they have their own worship band, they have their own counseling um, pastors on hand and such to help the people. Um, it was still Driscoll's word and Driscoll's version of the word that was um, predominant and that was, you know, the brand, basically. I mean, and later it came out that he would literally use that kind of language about what Mars Hill was like, I am the brand, you know, um, but it didn't start that way. And I mean, there was there's. You know, there are some early stages, even when I was going there, when I started going there in 2006, where I would hear things like, well, you know, from from Mark, from the stage, oh, my my, you know, face is never going to be on a bus, you know, roving around Seattle saying Mars Hill Church. Right. And then I am that face. Right. But that really is what it became. And I mean, the tagline of the church eventually became, it's all about Jesus, <laughs> but really it was all about Mark. Um, and, you know, and that, that really became the, the predominant, you know, sense. Um, and so it was interesting. It was an interesting time for me to be there because I was there in 2000, like I said, 2006, when they had the centralized location you know, um, in the very early stages for the first time after being nomadic for, you know, at that point, you know, about a decade. Um, but, but then they started 
developing and growing and having these other facilities and multiplying throughout the city at the same time that Mark's own power and the structure of the church, the bylaws of the church and the organization of the church was changing such that more of the power and authority flowed through him. Um, so as it got bigger and as it expanded and as more, you know, um, labor had to be and, and sacrifice had to be asked of, you know, um, pastors who, you know, had been in, in, in probably, you know, and in fact, I know this in, in, in more of a sense of a collaborative, um, pastoral structure, then suddenly were taxed with feeling like at the one hand, they were asked to do more because they were having to spread out further and spread more thinly because they had to give more labor, but at the same time, um, were much more under Mark's thumb in a sense. Yeah. That's such an interesting part of the narrative of the book that, um, you know, of course, preaching um, is so central in the evangelical practice. And then at this church and this network of churches, as it grows, um, Mark Driscoll is so much at the center of um, not only the preaching, but kind of every aspect of church life. Um, and I think one of the things that's fascinating, and you you certainly couldn't have foreseen this at the beginning of your research at Mars Hill, um, but you actually were there um, through the sort of dramatic events that led um, eventually to Mark Driscoll's departure from the church. So I was wondering if you wanted to tell us a little bit more about what happened there. Oh, that is just so, yeah. I mean, you hit the nail on the head in the sense that that was something that I wasn't aware of at that point in time. I just knew something very disturbing was happening basically. Um, and you know, I had clues to that. So um, but, you know, backing up a little bit, I mean, so going back to the movies, for example, that I would see that would be used during various seminars. And I mean, I was just not going to Sunday services. I was going to gospel classes that were required for membership, which at that point in time, thankfully, were still being done live. So it wasn't all video at that point because it became shortly thereafter video. Um, so I was going to gospel classes on a regular basis. I was going to Bible study classes. I went to, I visited a community group in my neighborhood at that point in time. Um, you know, I, I went to gender and sexuality seminars, both co-ed, although there weren't so many of those, but there was one in particular that I went to. Um, and then, and then, you know, women only, um, you know, larger, again, non-member only, but open to that um, kind of spaces. So I was, I was going to a lot of programming. I mean, I, I was going, you know, at least two, three times a week um, for uh, roughly a couple of years. Um, and, and so I did start to feel, and I went in with a, you know, I'm an anthropologist. I went in with a very and again, this was my research project. So I went in thinking, I just, I'm fascinated by this place. You know, I just want to understand what is attractive about it to, to younger folks in particular, right? Again, you know, men and women both. Um, and so, so that was my first kind of question. Again, in Seattle, how is this happening? How is this becoming so big? But then I started realizing that, Within that, my own bodily responses to what was going on were really disturbing. And um, I mentioned the book at one time getting sick um, during and shortly after service, I wound up vomiting like outside the church. And, you know, that was one of those like stories where I was like, do I include this in the book? <laughs> Is anybody? But it, that was a real you know, that was a real thing that happened. And it wasn't, it wasn't explainable by the usual kinds of, oh, I have the flu or, oh, I was really disturbed by something he said. And therefore, you know, there was no cause and effect here. And I think that's what's really intriguing is that it wasn't like that simple. It, the narrative, the, the, the teleological kind of experience of being in the space and, and being in relationship with people um, didn't lend itself to a lot of easy explanations. It's just that I had some bodily responses to things that were troubling to me that I couldn't nail down at that point in time. And again, these are the early stages of the research where I was just like present. Um, and I was talking to people, but I talk about this in the, the book. I mean, I didn't have, because of the IRB, 
I didn't have license without Driscoll's permission to formally interview anybody. So I could only be in spaces where non-members could be. Now, thankfully, at an evangelical church, that means a lot of events, you know, that means a lot of things that I could still partake in. Um, And so I was having informal conversations with people and I would, you know, depending on the conversation, I mean, if it was just a like, hi, how are you? How long have you been coming to Mars Hill? But, you know, if if I was in a smaller community space, it would come out and, you know, I would be ethical about saying I'm an anthropologist, I'm doing research on marriage politics, I'm interested in how, you know, the church is talking about marriage and talking about gender roles within marriage and that sort of thing. So, um, but, but I, you know, there's something about not having that ability or that ethical sort of license institutionally speaking to invest in formal interview processes that afforded me the opportunity to really invest in, you know, being attuned to my bodily responses to things. Um, And that was, I, I now understand how rich an experience that was for me and how rich that can be in terms of analysis. But I, you know, and I use affect theory a lot in the book, but you know, when I first started going to the church and started investing in field work, I wasn't, I, I hadn't, I didn't understand what affect theory was. I had never done any reading on affect theory. I, I just, um, I was just having to pay attention to myself and my own sort of understandings of being in that space from a very though, um, you know, in terms of judgment, detached point of view. So even when I would hear things that would be, you know, well, you know, when I first started going to church, it actually had a very positive reputation within Seattle. It wasn't until later that, you know, some negative press started developing. But, um, you know, I, I just went in with a very open attitude, like, I just want to invest in being in this place. And there was something extraordinarily useful about that in terms of then what came to be. And, you know, when I started realizing things were going awry, I mean, it wasn't even the, the getting sick um, factor at that point. I just thought that was just my own deal. Um, but I, you know, it was, it was more like recognizing, for example, oh, here's this pastor that I talked to again in his office about the theology um, of the church. And, and the next thing I know, they're gone, (laughs) you know, and nobody is saying anything about them being absent. And um, as someone who's spoken to this person and knows that they've been invested in producing a lot of content, you know, and counseling people and actively teaching classes on marriage in particular. So I would always be very attuned to, okay, who are the people who are talking about marriage? Who are the people who are counseling people on their marriages and that sort of thing? Um, You know, and then when people started just disappearing and it was, you know, it was one instance in particular in the initial stage of my research, but then it grew, you know, and then more people started leaving and, and, and you just, you wouldn't hear about it from the stage. Mark would never say anything about it. Um, there was no announcement about what would happen. The only times where there were announcements about people leaving was when it was on amicable, amicable terms, or at least like semi amicable terms, as far as the, the, you know, the PR, you know, perspective was. Um, but you know, in terms of people leaving, disappearing and not knowing what was happening that, you know, bells would start to go off. But again, I didn't know what to do with that. You know, I was just, so one of the things that's fun about the book, I think, is it's about being, it's about being an ethnographer in a space where this isn't really what you're doing. You feel compelled um, to do something about some kind of research on this subject or about this space um, and these people, but you don't really know where that's going to lead at all. So I had no research design <laughs> for this, you know. Um, but I love that, you know. I kind of now I look back on it, and it's been such a rich. And I'm also I think what's also interesting about it is that, frankly, I was thinking about this today, and I'm I've just I'm still in contact with people from Mars Hill. You know, it's not like I'm meeting people on a daily basis, but I mean, these, a lot of them I consider friends, you know, and, and we have this project that, you know, has been a part of our, you know, friendship, but, you know, there's also this kind of like aftermath of the publication and me still meeting with people, talking to people, doing things with people. And, 
And I'm in the space, like I'm still living in Seattle, you know, I'm in the space where I did my research. And um, I think that's very unusual. I don't think it's very common for anthropologists to be living in the space where they've been conducting their research for such a long period of time. And I had one year in Miami that I think was really useful for me to get away and then come back and, and, and sort of have some perspective. But, um, you know, I, I've been here the entire time. I, I've been in Seattle for a long period of time in my life. So, so that's another interesting component to things, I think. Um, and I deviated from your initial question, but hopefully in a productive manner. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, of course. This was, um, it's really nice to hear more about your process of doing research because, um, I think a lot of this comes across in the book, this sense of, um, being there in the space in a very open-ended kind of way. Um, also, I really appreciated that you wrote about the sort of constraints imposed by the IRB and then specifically imposed by Mark Driscoll, um, in terms of his refusal to allow you to interview people. Um, I feel like that's not something that we as anthropologists write about often enough, the kind of institutional structures that shape our access and shape our research processes. So that was a really fascinating part of the book for me. Um, There's so much to talk about here. But before we go any further, I want to ask you about um, the phrase biblical porn. It's a very catchy title. Um, In fact, I have to tell you, I was reading your book for the first time on an airplane a few months ago, um, and I happened to be sitting next to someone who was reading some sort of evangelical devotional literature. I'm not sure exactly what it was, but it looked something like The Purpose Driven Life or one of those kinds of books. Um, And as soon as I noticed that my seatmate was reading that, I I became very careful about sort of hiding the cover (laughs) of your book because I was just like, <laughs> Which is yeah. hard to do because Duke such a good did such a good job with the yes, cover. It's a so beautiful cover. It really catches the attention with the fluorescent lights and um, you know biblical yeah. porn. I mean, it's super catchy. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask, um, what what does the title mean? What is that about? And how does that fit into kind of the yeah, the church's no, teaching question. on gender and sexuality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, this is one of those questions that I got asked from the very, I I knew the book title, you know, before I even understood for sure that this was going to be a book, honestly. And so it was a question that I was getting asked a lot, like, what is porn? What is porn? What is porn here? So, um, you know, on a very, very, um, you know, obvious level, um, it's about the fact that Driscoll would preach about sex on a very regular basis, um, you know, depend, it, it really didn't depend on what the, the verses of the Bible that he might've been speaking to, like sex would just come up in a jokey kind of way, or, you know, uh, you know, there was something, you know, about sex, like, and I, I wouldn't say every single sermon, but it was a frequent topic that he would return to. Um, and so I noticed, you know, that that was something that was very, that was a pattern, right? Um, but the first time that I stepped into the sanctuary and I was watching him before he even started preaching, um, he did a joke that I talk about in the introduction to the book about um, Will Ferrell's Talladega Nights. And there's, you know, this thing about little baby Jesus, thank you for my smoking hot wife. And, and now smoking hot wife, I mean, talk, I mean, Driscoll was a trendsetter with an evangelicalism. I mean, and, and you can see it filtering down to so many different ways, but one of them is that smoking hot wife now is a very common sort of phrase for men to use about their wives in an evangelical context. I mean, again, it's a certain kind of evangelical, you know, like people who are attracting a younger demographic. I don't want to say that all, you know, evangelical pastors do this, that would be wrong, but you know, so, but I've seen this, I've seen this. Yes. I've seen exactly. I've seen this sort of seeker friendly type of churches. Um, And so this, this kind of talking about sex from the pulpit in a a very sexualized manner, like if you're a Christian and you're married, you're going to have the best sex of your life, you know? Um, So, so there was that. And again, that's not new. And you know, there are a lot of historians that will point out that that is not new. Uh, You know, there have been, when I talk about this in the book, you know, there's been trends mm-hmm. within evangelicalism for some time, at least since the 70s, um, where, you know, um, Tim LaHaye and his wife, Beverly Hay, came out with 
um, books about sex and sex within Christian marriage and, you know, even with design uh, diagrams and, you know, like it, it almost like the joy of sex, you know, I mean, there was, there, there were sort of, you know, these trends within evangelicalism for a mm-hmm, while. Mm-hmm. However, um, what I found really intriguing about the way Driscoll was doing it was not only was he preaching from the pulpit in this manner, but, um, you know, when it came to then that writing into the way that they would talk about gender and their gender doctrine, which, which is called complementarianism, which again is not uncommon within a conservative evangelical environment. Complementarianism is a very common thing for, so, so men um, can only be pastors. They're the only ones who can preach from the pulpit. Um, however, you know, and, and then, and so it's all about submission. So, so, so men are submissive to, you know, uh, Jesus and, and the church, but then they are in the hierarchy of things, um, you know, above their wives or above women, right? So, so women shouldn't be taking public roles on um, that would make them, you know, in any sort of way um, having more authority or power um, than men do in a hierarchical kind of scale, uh, now, having said that, I mean, women were teaching um, the gospel at Mars Hill. And I, you know, I talk about in the book actively le- learning a lot from women that I was actually getting taught by because I would go to, I mean, women only, you know, seminars. So, I mean, obviously women are preaching in their own, in their own way. They're teaching in their own way, um, you know, from the stage at those, those points in times. But, but the way that this would then filter into this, like, you know, very, in, in a sense, sex positive, you know, um, oh, sex is gonna be great within Christian heterosexual marriage, and everybody should get married as soon as possible so that you can, you know, take part in this, because it's great. Um, women would then yeah. be taught also, <laughs> and, you know, Mark would walk back on this, and, you know, he was sometimes careful um, more so than others about the fact that he didn't want to make it sound like, you know, women should submit to men in the bedroom, no matter what, that wasn't necessarily the party line. However, um, it would come across that women were supposed to please their men. Um, Women were supposed to be sure that they were um, visible and naked before men, right? Uh, lights on, lights off, lights on always, unless you're gay or dead. I mean, that was like a joke, you know? And again, a lot of these are couched in terms of jokes, right? But, but the, the understanding was, yeah. is that, you know, men wanted the lights on during sex and women, you have to be visibly, you know, visually generous because men are visual and, um, you know, so within Christian marriage, that's something that you should understand you need to do for your man. And then also, um, you should please your man sexually. Otherwise he might go outside the marriage and it's going to be really hard for him not to, because he's got these visual representations of women in his mind, like on a Rolodex, you know, um, that he could just call up and that just do call up even without his, you know, um, intention or understanding. And so, you know, to be a good Christian wife, and if you want to keep your man within the marriage, then you have to be um, this visually generous, um, sexually free, you know, and that that phrasing of sexual freedom in particular was fascinating to me, um, you know, in order to then like make sure that your man stayed within the marriage, that you had a healthy marriage, but that you also had a ha- uh, healthy family healthy family life, you produced a lot of children. And then the idea was, and that there's going to be this multi-generational movement that, you know, is born from this church Mars Hill. So, you know, a lot of people, um, both men and women, um, were really taken with that, you know, that understanding of, and so that's what's fascinating to me. So when we go back to the idea of porn, I mean, yes, it's about sexualized doctrine, okay, end point. But it's also about, you know, this desire, you know, this desire to be and not just sexual desire, but a desire to be a, a part of something bigger than yourself, a desire to be a part of a movement that was couched in the way that Mars Hill's movement was in the terms of growth, in terms of, you know, spreading the word of the gospel. But then also, I mean, really feeding you know, ultimately, again, it's all about Jesus, but really it's all about Mark, right? Like his own brand and his own kind of place within um, evangelical Christianity on a national and international scale. Um, So, 
so that so porn, you know, is not just about the transmission of sexualized doctrine and how that's taken up, um, you know, within actual marriages and families, you know, which is already enough, but it's also about the, you know, sort of work, the labor that goes into what it means to be a part of something, to desire to be a part of something bigger than yourself that's couched in the kinds of terms that Marcel Church was, Um, you know, which then speaks to all kinds of dynamics about authority, about, you know, sociality, subjectivity, about, you know, um, belonging to something that's bigger than yourself and the desire for that, right? And and how that gets translated in, in this particular um, political and economic uh, economic climate. Um, so so yeah, it's about it's about labor, really. I mean, ultimately, but it's also about discourse. Yeah, thanks for that. I think this is maybe a good moment to ask about, um, you know, as you were just saying, it's not just about sort of individual couples or individual families, but it's much more about um, something larger. Um, and you use the phrase evangelical empire in the book. So I was wondering if you could mm. expand on that and maybe um, if you could also link it to um, Mark Driscoll's discourse about like the U.S. becoming a pussified nation. That was a phrase that he used. Um, mm. And maybe mm-hmm. tell us what that uh, what that says about his theology or his views on gender within the church and outside of the church. Yeah, I mean, well, so the empire question is, you know, again, there's, it seems like a lot of these are, are my answers are going to be layered or, or, you know, have, so the obvious being, right, that it's growing. So it's just like more, you know, it's, it's all about like population growth. But I really wanted to, and this is what I'm doing with at one point Foucault, um, or at a couple different points when I use Foucault in the book. Um, you know, this biopolitics of sex, like, and thinking outside of the scale of subject or individual um, or, you know, collectivity and population, right? So thinking about, you know, the biopolitics of sex, as I call it in the book, um, you know, yes, in terms of those scales, but then also in terms of movement, right? In terms of motion, in terms of something that's far more active, right? And something something that's about bodily processes and processes of communication and mediation um, that, again, are embodied, but that are, you know, the, the problem with using language like embodiment, it becomes so centered on self, right? And, and again, that individual kind of atomized. So I wanted to go and think about empire when we're talking on the collective scale or population scale as, you know, beyond just, this isn't just about population or isn't just about growth in a very physical sense. It's also about a kind of globalized um, vision, you know, of, of what should be, right? And how that, how that, again, going back to the language of desire, how that sort of sense of desiring um, not just to be a part of something, so yes, being a part of something bigger than yourself, but then not really being cognizant about the kinds of ways that that would work against self-interest, not being aware of the kinds of ways that, um, you know, that don't necessarily work for the family, <laughs> that actually actively work against healthy marriages, um, you know, and so empire here is a lot more about also this kind of globalized, you know, authoritarianism, but I, I don't like using the ism language simply because that just is too totalizing. You know, it, again, I always want to keep it active and that's what affect three helps me to do um, is it keeps that bodily process active. It keeps, you know, things ongoing such that agency isn't just about, you know, agency of the self or intentionality, you know, it's about also um, ways through which we're not necessarily just in a top down way controlled, you know, or in a Delusian network society, you know, of control kind of way, but, but there's a networking process that's involved here um, that you're actively involved in, but don't necessarily always have a beat on. Um, so that it's not always intelligible to yourself and so that you actually act not only against your own self-interests, 
but act against your own sense of right and wrong, you know, act against your own sense of good and evil. Um, and that to me is that mystery, um, is a really interesting way to think about, you know, empire and empiric kinds of, um, I don't know if movement's the right word, but moving, you know, that motion of like what it takes to drive, you know, that sense of drive. Um, and so, so that's the empire component, um, in terms of the pussified nation and again, how that plays out with gender. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I feel unfortunately like this book is so prescient in so many ways to what's happening now. Right. Um, you know, and not just in the United States on, yeah, I mean, not just in the United States, there's other countries. I mean, we can, I, I don't like to use the word global per se, because that's again, so totalizing, but you know, there's definitely global movements of authoritarianism that are happening. Um, and I would say authoritarianisms in that case, right. That are different on the ground and depending on the nation that we're talking about and the leaders that we're speaking about. Um, but, but in a U.S. context um, alone, you know, the way that Trump was able to win the 2016 election and the way his campaign was run, um, you know, I mean, just the language of, of pussified nation, um, you can see that so readily apparent in the way that he won, you know, and there's a, a lot of factors and we can talk about obviously like, you know, the, the various things that people have already talked about, right. About, class and about but i i just feel like the gendered component sometimes has been um undermined or, or not thought about as rigorously as it could um and uh, i mean my next project i mean so maybe i'm moving in a direction that is a little bit too soon to go but but basically i want to think a little bit more about um race and gender um in terms of these processes of media mediation communication and from an assemblage point of view which i definitely do in the book you know in biblical porn absolutely um and that's the the language of assemblage and that concept is really useful um, for thinking about, you know, these kinds of things that could seemingly be disparate um, or coming from different directions. And then, uh, you know, and, and so, so I think with Pussified Nation, I mean, the thing that's fascinating to me about that is like the way that Driscoll was able to use digital technologies um, in order to get across this notion of a crisis of masculinity. And again, he was just, he, I mean, whether it was intentional or not, he was, he was really on point um, with a certain kind of discourse that was already happening about crisis of masculinity, right? I mean, there's been so many, there were so many articles that were coming out at the point in time when I started doing my research about that, like in things like the Atlantic, you know, I mean, that were not necessarily coming from any point of ideological view other than this is happening, what's happening to boys in the classroom, what's happening to, you know, and then we can talk about the industrial economy and, you know, it was in the outs you know, outsourcing of labor. And so, so, you know, there's all the, again, all these different kinds of components and this is why assemblage is really useful. So, you can, you know, it's not just political economy. It's not just right. A crisis of masculinity discourse. It's not just right. Like there's all these factors that come into play to have made, you know, Trump's election possible. Um, and I would argue to have made, you know, Mars Hill's rise possible, um, particularly again in the kind of Seattle, you know, environment that it did. But um, so, yeah, I mean, I think we're still in that moment of pussified nation. I mean, we're still in that moment of trolling of the ugliness that can happen online. It's just become even more amplified, really. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson has had, you know, two sold out shows in Seattle. <laughs> you know? And um, I went to the last one. And, you know, Jordan Peterson, like, talks about, you know, men clean up your rooms. And, you know, men are order, women, fem the masculine is order, feminine is chaos. And, you know, it, I mean, there's other things to think about beyond those um, bifurcations. But I mean, it really does boil down to that. Um, and so how is this still being used, exploited, has this kind of traction on such a, a popular, you know, cultural, um, you know, moment? Like it, it's just in, in among so many different audiences, so many varied audiences. 
Um, and then how digital technologies and the ways that, you know, people use them, again, not just, you know, Fox News or Alex Jones Infowars, but also just how people are engaging online, you know, from their homes, I think is a really useful or interesting way to think about, um, you know, this It's not, again, not being a top down, you know, control factor, but actually are, you know, people um, investing in these kinds of understandings, ideas, discourses, notions about what it is to be masculine, for example, and a crisis of masculinity that's been ongoing for some time, um, and and how they participate in that, you know, how, and again, not just men, women too, but how, how people are participating in that um, and how that leads to something like Charlottesville, you know, um, in 2017, um, and, and, and it does, you know, like these, it's, again, it's not a trend per se, but it's something that has been ongoing for some time and it has, you know, times where it's become more intensified and amplified and then it bursts out in these moments like Charlottesville. But, but this, it's, it's happening at all times and it's a constant, you know, it's a constant factor in, in so much of our daily lives now. And so much, I mean, just my interactions online in the last decade have changed dramatically. And I'm not talking about email or something like that, but like, just, you know, you just pay attention a little bit more to what's happening beyond um, your own sort of bubble on Facebook. And you start to realize that there's, there's a lot of undercurrents that are really nasty um, you know, so I've been looking at men's right activist groups online. I've been looking at, um, you know, I was paying a lot of attention to Milo Yiannopoulos for a while. I went to a protest um, that happened outside of his talk on Inauguration Day in 2017 um, at UW campus that somebody was shot at. Um, and I write about that. That's not come out yet, but that's a piece that's going to be coming out shortly in a, a law journal. Um, so, you know, these, these pre, so, so when we talk about, I guess, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm going up on a, on a, a really long tangent here, but basically I don't, I can't separate crisis of masculinity discourse out from, for example, free speech rights, right. And how that's being, um, weaponized now. Right. So I think, again, these are part of a longer or bigger piece um, that I'm going to be investing more time in now um, and already have been. Um, and, and I think that, you know, we have to look at or I need to look at for my next project a lot of different angles through which, um, you know, this crisis of masculinity is operational on the ground, but then also online. Yeah, I really appreciate hearing your thoughts on this because as I was reading the book, one of the questions that occurred to me was that um, some people might um, push back against your book a little bit by saying, oh, well, this is not necessarily like representative of evangelicalism as a whole. Like some people might say that, you know, oh, well, Mars Hill was just kind of a um, a fringe or might even call it a cult um, as a way of kind of marginalizing its significance, which I don't think would be um, an accurate interpretation of the facts. As you've pointed out, there were a lot of ways in which um, Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill were really important trendsetters um, within the sort of evangelical world. But even beyond that, I think you're making really important points about how these ideas about um, masculinity and language about um, a sort of crisis of masculinity or anxiety around what it means to be a man um, in contemporary American society absolutely extend sort of beyond the evangelical world um, and into, um, you know, <laughs> into life online, into Charlottesville, into um uh, basically the world that we all are living in. Um, and so I really appreciate your thoughts and your points on this. Um, before we wrap up, I know we're running a little bit short on time, but I just wanted to ask if there's anything else about the book that we haven't gotten to talk about. I want to say for our listeners, this book is so rich. There's a lot in it. Um, and I feel like we barely just scratched the surface. So I do encourage everyone to read it. Um, but is there anything, Jessica, that you wanted to highlight that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, one of the points that 
it's just really important for me um, and the people that I have been working with throughout this very long, you know, project is, and again, it's ongoing in a sense, even though the book is done um, because I'm still in relationship with people is, is the sense of vulnerability, you know, and um, one of the phrases that I use towards the end of the book is vulnerability of encounter. Um, And, you know, it's in some ways my attempt to take some kind of an ethical stance um, on what is necessary in order to, you know, deal with the current climate that we're in. Um, You know, so it it stems from the book and my own experiences there. But then again, I think arguably it's something that is worthy of taking up um, in this moment. Um, I, I just, you know, in terms of communication, in terms of, you know, being in, um, and it's not even community so much as it is just, just, yeah, these processes of communication, like knowing that to take a defensive posture, to take a fearful posture, to take a posture that is one that portends to be, um, you know, all about the self or, or, or this sort of bounded sense of psyche and self, um, is really, it's a, it's a, it's a trapping of liberalism. So not even using neoliberalism here, but, you know, a trapping of liberalism and, and certain principles within, you know, uh, within liberalism that I think, um, you know, are really, of all of the things about liberalism right now that I think we need to push back on, it's something like that. Like we, you know, I, I feel very vulnerable um, when I am, you know, not only talking about this book, um, you know, it could be a conference. It could be um, uh, with my friends from the church. It could be, you know, in an interview such as this. I mean, I just feel very, um, not only ethically responsible to the people I encountered, not only in that space, but just, you know, even sometimes people that I didn't necessarily meet, but I know had, you know, the experiences that they did in that space, um, that there's something outside of these understandings of what it means to be sympathetic or empathetic, um, or even a sense of social justice that is, um, necessary to take the risk in order to understand what vulnerability really is. Um, I think ethnography is a really amazing um, tool or instrument through which to really understand what it means to be vulnerable. Um, It doesn't necessarily mean that it's always taken up when I, you know, some ethnographies I read um, speak to that from an ethnographer's perspective more than others. Um, but, but I think for me and what I want to keep pushing in my future work is, um, the kind of ethics of vulnerability, um, that I, I think are really necessary for us to uh, get to a point where the, the communication breakdown that's happening right now because of, you know, different kinds of polarization and tribalization and, um, you know, which isn't, I mean, again, that's not real, <laughs> but we're participating and contributing in that, uh, contributing to that. Um, and it's fomented by the current administration, obviously. It's fomented by the kind of echo chambers that we can build around ourselves online. Um, but to really push against the notion that that's a reality and that that isn't something that even when we're in a bubble, that we actually have to still participate in being vulnerable um, and, and trying to get to grips with that, right. And trying to get to grips with the fact that like to be vulnerable, isn't necessarily, it doesn't have to be a scary thing. It's actually what we do all the time. Um, and I, that's where the body comes into play, I think in really fascinating ways, um, because we are always in control of our bodies. Um, you know, things happen to our bodies, we get sick, Um, you know, we get injuries. Um, there are things that happen that we can't always be on top of. And I think thinking about through this bodily speaking and the times we're out of control in terms of what's happening bodily is a really useful way to try to come to grips with what it means to be vulnerable on this political 
you know, collective scale. Um, you know, I don't have any, you know, I don't think the book and I certainly right now don't have any easy resolutions to what's happening currently in this, you know, again, political climate, but, um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't, I have friends who from Mars Hill who have gone different kinds of directions, politically speaking. And I don't want to speak to all of that because I think, again, that's just a complex and it's complicated, but, um, but I think like putting yourself out there in a way that doesn't mean that you're always agreeing with somebody in communication, but recognizing that just to communicate itself is a vulnerable practice um, is a really uh, rich way to start thinking about violence when it comes to discourse um, is a really rich way to think about the violences that can occur um, that we're not always privy to and that we're, you know, impinging upon other people. Um, and then to get to grips with the material violences and the structural violences that are ongoing, that, you know, um, that people apparently can just shut down from, you know, but again, I don't really feel like that's, it's not like that's actually happening. I feel like there's, there's openings to kind of push through to the other side where there can be some understanding about the, the viscerality of those, um, of those violences on a structural level and a material level. Um, but, you know, again, you have to push back against this current administration and some of the ways that authoritarianism are, are definitely at play here. Um, and I don't know, I just, you know, I have days where I believe in people. This happens to be one of those days, <laughs> but, um, but there are, <laughs> So yes, yeah. So it's sunny in Seattle, yay! Um, but you know, I think, I think that um, you know, there's other days where you know, yeah, the the political sort of climate breeds a certain sense of paralysis or a certain sense of disaffection or a certain sense of pessimism. Um, and I certainly am. I fall into that myself. Um, but but I think you know, there's things that also still lead me to believe that if we can get more in touch bodily speaking with these vulnerabilities that we all have and on a certain level share, not in the same way, I would never make that as a generalized statement. Um, but you know, so that for example, there's a, there's a book that I've been reading that, that is about this meme where, you know, black lives matter is like the thing that matters more than white feeling. Right. Um, and it's, it's shown by one of those, um, uh, I wish I had the diagram that I could, but anyway, um, and I feel like, you know, when we get to race and gender and, and, and pushing against some of the inequalities and structural violences that have been ongoing forever, um, in this country that, that there needs to be a way to not only recognize that those structural violences are occurring, but then also, to collaboratively across ideological views, push back against those. So in a coalitional sense, um, and that's certainly happened in our history in the United States. It's just that, um, you know, I think that some of this, again, this tribalism, this polarization, the ways that, you know, um, social media has afforded us the ability to just sort of shout or talk at one another as opposed to actually listening, um, you know, on a very basic level, um, you know, needs to happen again. And, and so in this book, my hope is, is that I don't come across as like, you know, having an answer or the author who is above it all and got to that place, but rather that because I had these kinds of constraints where I couldn't talk to people, um, you know, in a very formalized manner, at least, that I was able to bodily understand and feel troubled by, um, you know, on a certain level experience, again, not necessarily the same things that everybody did within that space, depending on their goals and how invested they were and how close they were to Mark and all these other factors that come into play. So I, I would never want to be like, this is an analogy across the board, but, but, but I feel like bodily speaking, we have a lot to learn. And I feel that, um, this book hopefully shows that through the body, um, and through investments and in understanding our bodily affective 
um, you know, responses to not only one another, but to environments and atmospheres and language and technologies um, and, and being active about how we're doing that and recognizing that there's assemblages that are then also agentive within that, um, that, you know, we come to some better understanding about what it is to be human, <laughs> you know, like, you know, on the, the most basic level, anthropologically speaking of what we supposedly do as anthropologists, um, you know, I think we have to go outside of the human at a certain point to like kind of understand what it is that it is to be human anymore. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, so vulnerability and, and the ethical kind of onus to what it, what it means to be vulnerable and, and how to activate that in the world in such a way to, to actually get some communication that's happening. That isn't just this kind of shouting across ideological perspectives, um, I think is really important and I don't always get it right, but hopefully the book sort of conveys a bit of that. Yeah, I think it really does. And maybe that's a nice way to sum things up and just say, um, authoritarianism, embodiment, affect, and the ethics of vulnerability, um, and communication were all really important themes, um, in this book. And it sounds like they are important themes that we can look forward to in your work going forward. I hope so. <laughs> Thank you for that beautiful yeah. summary. Yeah, that, was, that, was, that was gorgeous. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for talking with us, Jessica. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you for taking the time. That was Dr. Jessica Johnson talking with me about her new book, Biblical Porn, Affect, Labor, and Pastor Mark Driscoll's Evangelical Empire, which came out this year with Duke University Press. I really enjoyed our conversation and really enjoyed reading the book. Hope you will as well. And I hope you'll join us again next time for more on the New Books Network.